Defoe may have the showier role, but it is the beautifully brooding Pattinson eerily channeling a young mustachioed Robert Mitchum, who has the tricky task of steering this two-hander into a full-blown psychological tempest. That is a review from Justin Chang. He's a beauty. Writes for the LA Times. The Lighthouse, one of the films that we're reviewing this time here on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. Please do subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. That is how we keep things rolling here. Uh, special guests today, including James Andrew Miller, the author of many acclaimed books, including the ones about Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and also CAA. So Jim's going to join us to talk about some more meaningful films, at least of his lifetime, and I'll also give mine as well. And also, I don't know how we got him, but my dad is available as well. He's going to talk about an excellent new documentary, which is available on Netflix. Uh, let's talk first, though, about The Lighthouse, because it is really a movie that I was highly anticipating, played at the Cannes Film Festival. It's shot in gorgeous black and white, and you've got this story, which is about as straightforward as it gets. It's uh, just two guys losing their minds in a lighthouse set in 19th century. Um, it's actually shot in Nova Scotia, but I mean, the visuals of it, you feel like you're watching a silent film and clearly owes a lot to German expressionism and, you know, films of that era. Uh, even as Chang writes in his review, The Lighthouse may be a little too in love with its own virtuosity, but who can blame it? At a time when American movies are overrun with shopworn visions, its madness is a bomb and a beacon. Robert Pattinson plays a guy who shows up and Willem Dafoe is the lighthouse keeper and then very quickly treats him as a slave, treats Pattinson with, you know, he denigrates him and tells him what to do and clean this and clean that and carry this and carry that. And then at night, the two guys have a few drinks and tell some stories. And, and Defoe's character is the one who's much more verbose, um, you know, laughing and cackling. And his accent, I mean, at first it sounds like he's impersonating a pirate. It does take a little bit of getting used to it. Twas he, twas he, twas he. Look at the Blarney Stone. Um, but Defoe is such a good actor. He, he, if at first it seems a little bit of a character or cartoonist, later on he shows that this guy's got a real twinkle in his eye and is not to be trifled with even as he is an issue with flatulence, which makes him, again, look a little bit cartoonish. As for Pattinson, his character is much more intense and straightforward, but he gets more and more angry because of the fact that Defoe's character is getting under his skin and he's just trying for release. I mean, there's a scene that like, I, I could have done without the scene of him furiously masturbating, but he has these crazy visions. He's got mermaids taunting him. He's got ideas that Defoe's trying to kill him. So as I said, really, this is a story about madness. It is about two men in one location who driven by circumstances beyond their control, the weather outside, the fact that they can't leave, the fact that their jobs are the way they serve, that the fact that they're limited to each other, almost chained to each other. Eventually, things start to unravel, and then Pattinson's character has to tell uh, a very big revelation, and then Defoe's character reacts, and away we go. At times, it feels like it's a dream. It's very surreal, but it is beautifully shot. I mean, just gorgeous black and white in 2019 to see a film that's actually in a major theater at an AMC Garden Plaza where I was. I couldn't believe I'm actually watching a black and white film. But of course, you got two major stars and Defoe is somebody who critics love and Robert Pattinson's a huge name as far as people who love box office draws. I mean, for God's sakes, the guy was in Twilight and now he chose to make this movie. So respect to him for doing it. Robert Eggers is the director, also made a previous film called The Witch. He's obviously a very stylish director. Having said all of that, Joe, I'm only going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs because the plot is about as malnourished as Pattinson's character. I mean, it's literally just two guys hanging out. And at times I thought the story could have used a, a little more oomph couple of twists and turns, and even the dialogue at times, a little bit tough to follow. Again, I give Eggers credit because he's writing in like that 19th century prose and that dialogue, which can be tough to follow at times. But ultimately, I recommend it for the style, the vision, and for the acting. Are you going to be seeing The Lighthouse? I give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I will be seeing The Lighthouse. I did really love The Witch, and 
it doesn't surprise me that he wrote in the same prose of that era because he does that in The Witch too. And I've been reading reviews that he uh, that this movie might be a little bit more demented than The Witch, but it sounds like from what you're telling me, it was just kind of underwhelming at parts. Yeah, I mean, you do have demented seagulls, a mermaid, octopus tendons, and the beacon of light, which is key to hear, you know, these guys all losing their minds. But yeah, it is uh, certainly an unsettling film set in 1890s New England. But if you want something different right now at the multiplexes, that's the one that I recommend for all of you. Some entertainment news before we get to Jim. This will be Robert Evans. That's right. The Paramount executive produced Chinatown, Urban Cowboy, Life is Melodramatic and Jaw-Dropping as Any. Passing away Saturday night, 89 years of age. Of course, you should go back and watch Chinatown, which I just recorded again on TV. So I think I'd like to watch that again. Uh, Marathon Man, Urban Cowboy. Also, of course, he was heavily involved with The Godfather. Uh, did not want to famously cast Pacino. So he looked like a little midget. What the hell are we going to put this guy in the movie for? He wanted to get Robert Redford in the movie. But Francis Ford Coppola stuck to his guns and said, no, it's got to be Al. Uh, love story, of course. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Ryan O'Neill, Ali McGraw, Harold and Maude. Great Gatsby, Rosemary's Baby. I mean, acclaimed career. And honestly, the one that I want people to see is the documentary, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which was based on Robert Evans' book. You should read the book and watch the documentary. But if you only do one, watch the documentary because he clearly was a colorful guy. Very entertaining. Robert Evans, Joe, a real important figure, I think, in film history, especially if you love movies of the 70s. Yeah, I mean, looking at this list here is just one critically acclaimed movie after another, just his influence on it. And from my understanding, he didn't have any experience before taking over at Paramount in this and just hit after hit with him. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, other news, a stained cigarette burned cardigan unwashed in nearly three decades has sold at an auction for $334,000. That's right. Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. That he wore that green button up during the band's MTV Unplugged performance in 1993, has not been clean since he last wore it, killed himself in 1994, age of 27. But according to Darren Julian, president of Julian's auction, Cobain's mohair cardigan, the holy grail of any article of clothing that he ever wore. Obviously, a, a really talented musician, highly influential, but 334 grand, Joe. This is absurd. Yeah, I know. It's not even washed. I'd be like, come on, guys, just throw it in the wash if you're going to give it to me first. Probably smells like mid-age spirit at this point, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, well done. It smells like teen spirit. Uh, Louis C.K., if you're a Louis C.K. fan, my cousin is, he's announced a new 14-city international tour in an email to his fans. A rare email update to subscribers this weekend, beginning his tour Saturday, November 2nd in Richmond, Virginia, concluding January 31st in New Orleans, Along the way, stops will include Tel Aviv, Rome, and Detroit. CK writing on his page, I'm on the road doing professional stand-up comedy, which consists of sharing jokes, stories, observations, lies, non-lines, and being generally ridiculous for the benefit of a laughing audience. He was accused of sexual misconduct by five women in 2017. Allegations, which he later said were true, laid low for a brief period before returning to stand-up in August of 2018. Wasn't long before audio leaked of his new material. During an appearance in December, he was heard mocking trans and non-binary individuals, as well as survivors of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Clearly, the guy remains very controversial. And this past May, CK further raised eyebrows with his policy against sharing his material without his consent. I mean, listen, he's obviously a funny guy, clearly got a track record here with what happened to him off... Uh, off the field, so to speak. But I think he's certainly got his fans, Joe, by the fact that the fact he's going to be doing a 14-city tour. Maybe he's not doing a you know Netflix special anytime soon or a TV show. But I, clearly doing stand-up, you know, maybe that's a safe space that people just enjoy his comedy, don't judge him. They just focus on the comedy. And whatever he did in the past, they're willing to give him a second chance. 
Yeah, I think uh, he has a fan base that will be there. I know a lot of people who won't be there, though. So I think that his apology tour is just going to have to continue for a few years. Yeah, exactly right. Definitely, Some people are definitely holding grudges over his behavior. And lastly, Netflix testing video speed controls for everybody in a hurry to watch everything and then die. That's the headline from AV Club. Reportedly, testing on a feature that will allow some users to control the playback speed of the streaming services stuff. The goal presumably being to make it easier for someone to watch the entirety of the service's massive library of content and then die. Peaceful in the knowledge they finally got something done in this incomplete, endlessly satisfying world. Seriously, it's bizarre, but TiVo's been giving its users quick mode, which speeds up recorded programs by 30% for years. But now it sounds like the DVR company facing some stiff competition in why is my leisure time moving so slow? Crazy idea here, Joe. I mean, listen, people are listening. Maybe they're listening to this podcast right now at one and a half speed. I get that. Although Mark Simon has told me I talk way too fast that I don't allow them to skip ahead. So yeah, nice try, guys, trying to get a little faster through this podcast. But I mean, it's one thing to speed up a podcast, but here with the Netflix Android app, the fact you can actually speed up the show. Isn't that crazy? Kind of nuts. I, I, you know, when I first saw this, I thought that I would never use this. But now the more I think about it, there's so many slow scenes in movies or TV shows that I love that I just want to get through. So I will probably use it for that. Yeah, I mean, that, you're right. If you're just trying to fly through something, I mean, I guess. Everyone's just in a hurry, hurry, hurry. But that's the world it is right now. All right, that's our focus when it comes to entertainment news and the new film, The Lighthouse from Robert Eggers. Now it's time for our special guest. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Not only is he an acclaimed author, but also a teammate here at Cadence 13. It's a real pleasure to bring in James Andrew Miller. He is the best-selling author of many great books, including Live from New York, An Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live, Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN, and Powerhouse, The Untold Story of Hollywood's Creative Artists Agency. I also mentioned the fact he's a teammate. You can check out his Origins podcast as Jim uncovers bold beginnings of success stories in the worlds of television, movies, sports, music, and business. There's been great stuff there in terms of content involving Sex in the City and Curb Your Enthusiasm, ESPN, you name it. It's a real pleasure to welcome in Jim Miller to the podcast. Of course, you can also follow him on Twitter at Jim Miller. As acclaimed as an author he is, he's an even better guy because he's got some time for us to dance in a file. Jim, how are we doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk first about The Irishman, which you and I both saw at the New York Film Festival, and I was so pleased that uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did. I saw that you tweeted out your review, and obviously as somebody who appreciates Pacino and De Niro and organized crime films and Martin Scorsese, what were your thoughts of The Irishman, which will be hitting theaters this Friday? Well, no offense it's the movie itself, but uh, I was lucky enough to get a, invited to the reception too, and like nothing like standing there, and then all of a sudden... Robert De Niro walks in, and then Al Pacino like follows him like five minutes later. It, it's just crazy. I mean, the <laughs> idea that Scorsese got these two together. I mean, they've been together, you know, a couple times before, but nothing like this. I, I mean, I think the movies are 
a real tour de force. It's um, it's somewhere I would put it between Goodfellas and Casino. I'd put it smack right in the middle, only because Goodfellas is you know Scorsese wise like my one of my Mount Rushmores. But it's such an unbelievable movie. And one of the things that's really interesting for me, I don't know if you felt this when you were watching it, but Joe Pesci is older now. He's He's thinner, he's more frail, and I think that his physicality informed a more nuanced and, dare I say, even more emotionally dimensional performance from him. I thought it was, I mean, as great as everybody is in the movie, I thought Pesci was a real, just delicious surprise. Yeah, I talked to Rebecca Keegan about it, Jim, last week on the podcast, and of course she does a great job for The Hollywood Reporter, and she also mentioned that, just that his performance was so atypical of what you'd expect in a Scorsese film that you're used to seeing these firecracker characters in Goodfellas and Casino. And this time, as you mentioned, he's much more thoughtful and measured. And he's somebody who doesn't necessarily take joy in his work, but he's just reasonable about what has to happen. That, that isn't a word you'd normally expect with Pesci. And, and as you mentioned, it's been a while since we've seen him. I mean, he's in semi-retirement. So the fact that Marty and Bob were able to coax him into a film again, I, I agree. He's, he's wonderful in the film and hopefully gets an Oscar nomination. And if you look at his lines, and if you really, I thought back on it, and I can't wait to watch the movie again, his his character and what his character sets in motion, and, I mean, obviously the plot is very intricate, but his work um, in that movie is so important to the plot itself that it's it's really, it's you, you always think that, the person who is kind of like the fulcrum and the engine of so much in the plot has to have this, you know, kind of like dominant standing in the movie, particularly from a Scorsese point of view. And yet here's Pesci winding everything up and pushing there all these buttons and stuff. And, and he does it in a, in a very uh, unusual way for him. I thought, I thought it was uh, really, really interesting. I hope people definitely see it in theaters as well. I know it'll be on Netflix November 27th, but I'm sure Jim Cuenco, my sentiments, that this is one of those films you want to see on the, the grandest, biggest stage possible and really let the film soak over you. Yes, it's long, but it's also engaging the entire time, and it really is telling this guy's life story. It's, it's in many ways a character study. It's a historical piece beyond being a film from, from one of our great filmmakers. The topic we want to dive into, though, today, Jim, which is a great idea you suggested to me, is about meaningful films for both of us. So it's an interesting topic because so often you look at movies and they give this visceral impact and there's this emotional attachment that we have to film that maybe feels different when it comes to literature or music or other forms of art. So in the case of film, when there are movies that are impactful to James Andrew Miller and meaningful, what's one that stands out to you? I know we're going to do two or three here, but what's the first one for you? So I think when we were talking about this and you invited me on the podcast, I think the first thing we said was we can't say Godfather 1 or Godfather 2 because uh, I was guessing that that would be on your list and it certainly would be on mine, Godfather 2 first and Godfather 1. Um, I think, you know, there's a movie that, I think a lot of a lot of cinemaphiles know, but uh, I don't know if you know particularly millennials may know. But it's called The Third Man. It was made in 1949, and uh, for me, it was I saw it pretty. I was pretty young when I saw it, and it was one of those things that just stayed with me and it was so powerful because Orson Welles is in it actually. But for me, it was about reporting. It was about it was about asking questions of people and finding out a mystery. And it's also about the complexity of friendships. So Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton are friends, and 
not to give anything away, but basically Joseph Cotton goes to post-war Vienna to meet Orson Welles, and he arrives only to learn that he's dead, that his friend is dead. And the movie is this, you know, he kind of goes over. Joseph Cotton examines trying to find out what happened to his friend. And it, it just blew me away when I was younger. It's like, wait, you can can actually ask people a lot of questions and you can find out stuff and you can and then you can understand the complexities of not only friendship but what happens in a you know in a war-torn environment and people change and people really become uh, you know affected by what's going on around them so that was that's my first what's yours I was about to say, there's so much I love, though, about the third man. The the, the zither score, uh, the first time you see Wells, he realizes he's alive, and he gives that cheeky grin on his face. Uh, that whole sequence, Graham Greene, as you mentioned, wrote it. That whole sequence of dialogue when they're on the Ferris wheel about, you know, what does <laughs> what does democracy give you? The cuckoo clock. And, and I love, Jim, that final scene. It's one of my favorite scenes because, you know, Holly Martins finally gets the bad guy. And, of course, Wells is doing some horrible, dastardly things. But rather than getting the guy, he yeah. does not oh. get the girl. I mean, that that beautiful last long shot. Joseph Cotton said he actually thought that Carol Reed was going to cut long before, but instead he's smoking that cigarette and she walks by him. I mean, that's just a heartbreaking scene, isn't it? I, it really is. And for people who are listening who haven't seen it, it's a, it's just a joy. It, it's really, really clever. I'm so glad you like it. Oh, I love it, man. I, it's, it's a great film. Uh, Raging Bulls, the one I'm going to mention, just because... When I first saw it, I didn't know what to expect, Jim, and, I, and I'd heard so much about it, and I knew it's an important film in cinema history, and I said, I don't know if I want to watch this movie, because I, I felt squeamish about the subject matter, and, and there's no doubt, if you've never seen it, you know, the character of Jay Clamata is, in many ways, uh, obviously a monstrous character. He's verbally abusive, he's physically abusive, um, but as Roger Ebert wrote, it's nothing compared to the blows he, he delivers in the ring or takes inside the ring as to what happens outside of the ring, but... What's so impactful with the movie for me, remember when I saw it as a kid, and maybe I was too young to see it, but uh, I certainly appreciate the level to which Scorsese and De Niro approach the subject matter and were very non-judgmental. And that was my whole thought with this movie is that in the hands of other filmmakers and other craftsmen, they would be denigrating the character and being very judgmental. But with these guys, they're kind of just showcasing this guy's life. And they're not being, Jim, with any sort of dime store psychology, saying, oh, because his father treated him this way or his mother did this to him once and now he became this. This is just who this guy is. They're just presenting it very much like you said, you know, in terms of journalism, the third man. In this way, they're kind of just saying journalistically, here's who he is. You can judge whatever you like from him. Here's his flaws. Here's who he is. But we're going to be very honest about him. And what's amazing about the film is I don't know how these guys did it, but by the end of it, you do feel some sort of empathy for this guy. And you, and you say, after all he's been through, and as vicious as he's been, and he deserves all the pain and punishment that he's taken, he does you know, achieve this rare moment of redemption and clarity. And in that final scene, when you've got De Niro, an actor playing a boxer, Jake LaMotta, giving a speech from Marlon Brando, an actor playing a boxer, Terry Malloy, from On the Waterfront. I mean, it's, it's levels upon levels. But it's for a film which is uh, so tough with such demanding subject matter it's very poetic and it's a very beautiful film which is words you wouldn't expect to use with a film that's been so heavily influential like raging bull yeah i think that's right and i remember correct me if i'm wrong but i i raging bull was the movie that helped me understand i mean there were probably other examples that i had studied about or knew about but boy when when it didn't win best picture i think ordinary people won that year yeah. right it was 1980. Was it 1980? Yeah, that's right, 1980. Um, right. So, and I was watching. I was, you know, younger, watching the 
<laughs> the Academy Awards and Raging Bull was just this unbelievable masterpiece. Ordinary People was a was a great movie. I mean, thank you, Robert Redford and Timothy Hutton won I think that year, and Liz from the Governor is cute, and Mary Tyler Moore and all that. But <laughs> Raging Bull was an amazing American movie, and um, it just was. I think it was one of those things that made me realize that you know what I'm going to keep my own counsel in terms of the what I think is the best picture of the year because I can't trust the Academy. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The fact it only won a couple of Oscars, one for Best Actor for De Niro and Best Editing for Thelma Schoonmaker, it just seems uh, seems unfair. Next up for you. I'm going to go with, uh, we'll keep sports in there. Uh, it's kind of an obvious one, but I have to say Hoosiers. Because I, I just, I, I mean, it's one of the, you know, if we say that there are only seven stories in the world, um, it's one of my favorites. And I love this idea of the little engine that could and, you know, combating the odds. I, I thought it was such a, I mean, there's, there's so many amazing sports movies and everything else, but the thing that I really just loved about Hoosiers was this incredible marriage between character and story. And, you know, Gene Hackman and with his, you know, difficult background going into this movie and uh, his character's difficult background and obviously the odds um, and that this this little town and it just uh, you just the verisimilitude of it just overwhelmed me and uh, David Onspaugh who directed it uh, I mean it's amazing that he did I mean it was an incredible job he did with that I thought Barbara Hershey was wonderful and you just I don't know there isn't a, a time it's one of those movies where if you're flipping through the you know the the, the premium cable channels and it's on. I have to stop because at any given point, um, I just think it's so compelling and so raw. And of course, the ending is just you know beyond terrific. Even though, you know, we we may know it's coming. It's just it's just mind blowing. Dennis Hopper is fantastic too. Nominated for an Oscar, playing the alcoholic father. Remember, you know, he's a guy obviously played so many I'm, villains in his career, but he was great in the movie. Probably, I mean, shame on me for not leading with that. One of Dennis Hopper's, you know. Most amazing performances, and that's saying a lot. I mean, he was really incredible. And there's a moment where uh, you know he's in the hospital and he's just listening to the game on the radio. And what he does in that scene is just, uh, uh, you know, it's it's why he was Dennis Hopper. Um, Yeah, I think that's. Thank you for mentioning that. Oh, for sure. And that whole sequence at the end where Hackman, like, I'm sure it's been used so much, Joe, by other sports teams in terms of intimidation and not being overwhelmed by the moment. You know, how high is the net? How long is the gym? Like, that that whole speech is wonderful. And as you mentioned, of course, the whole closing. So smart. Yeah. The fact, when he says, I love you so guys, smart. it's tough not to get choked up. Uh, my next film, I'm going to mention Taxi Driver, which is a film that I saw when in my college years. And I just think it's the best one I've ever seen about urban alienation and loneliness. And this that character of... Of Travis Bickle, I mean, it's such a great metaphor for for you know wandering through life, trying to find your place. You know, driving this empty vehicle at night and just observing everything around you. And I just thought that movie, Jim, really tapped into you know, it's a movie really you know when you're young and and angry and disenchanted and disenfranchised, and maybe you got dumped by a girl and you can't find the right job and you're so pissed off. And it's it's just a movie that really spoke to me at that time. And I think it, it's one of those reasons why it's so resonant because it really was. Not only of its time, which is 1976, but a movie now, if you pop in, you say, yep, I can still see how people today would have those types of emotions um, against people who are unlike themselves. And so they have tough, trouble relating to them, and therefore they're looking for 
for a means of violence to act out, to act upon these impulses, and just that whole idea of, of saving someone and trying to find salvation. And, you know, Paul Schrader wrote the script. I mean, this is such a beauty from Schrader because even Quentin Tarantino has said it's the best first-person script he's ever seen. And just, you know, the way that Travis's narration and the impending doom and the way the movie builds that stunning climax of violence as Travis decides to take things in his own hands. I mean, this was, as, as Schrader has said, if I didn't write the script, I would have become this guy. And so I had to get it out of me. And he said, he wrote it in 10 days, which is insane. It literally leapt out of him like an animal. And I know as somebody who's an author who appreciates authenticity and honesty, to me, Taxi Driver is about as honest a piece of filmmaking, particularly from the mind of Paul Schrader. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't go to any easy places at any given time. It's, I, I found it, it's, uh, I will say though, that I'm glad you emerged from this dark period. It's um, uh, <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but the truth is that it never lets up. That's the thing. I mean, in some ways, I remember when I saw Taxi Driver, it was exhausting because every moment is just filled with, I mean, you're, it's either dread or apprehension or ter- you're terrified, you're concerned. It's it's emotionally speaking. I mean, obviously there's a lot going on on the screen and there's a, there's a story and everything else, but I think one of the things that the script does, and obviously once again, we're talking about the great De Niro, it, it just, it's unrelenting. You, you, you just don't, you don't get a break. I mean, tell me a time in that movie where, you know, you can take a deep breath. I mean, it isn't until the end and it isn't until the credits roll. Yeah, maybe when Albert Brooks is talking about stool pigeons and he's trying to entertain Betsy, but you're right. Even that comic relief has a sense of unease. Oh, yeah, I guess. But I mean, you know, even that, because I I guess I was thinking, well, they're faking us out because that means something really bad is coming. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just, it was, (laughs) I just thought, I'm not going to fall for this. Um, But yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, I just, Jodie, Jodie Foster has been, amazing talking about this movie as well if people want to dig into some of the things that she said about it it's uh it, it was a it was a powerful moment for everybody involved yeah the fact that she was 14 years old playing a 12 year old prostitute iris i mean her scenes are uh, very impactful because she doesn't seem unhappy which is just part of what makes travis so maddening you know what i mean he's like how could you be with this pimp how could you be okay with this like this is this is disgusting this guy's vile and she's like you know sports fine he treats me well he buys me stuff like he's just so he just finds it so maddening it's it's uh you're right there's definitely many levels that it works final film for you jim that has been particularly meaningful and impactful for you i would say um well you know if we do friendship and investigation and we do sports we got to, I'm going to end with something of the heart, and uh, I'm a Natalie Wood freak, so I'm going to say Splinter in the Grass, which is, um, which was actually Warren Beatty's first movie, made in 1961, and I think the thing that was compelling for me about that movie was um, the idea that you can have an unbelievably powerful, amazing love in your life and if it doesn't work out it doesn't mean that it wasn't an incredible relationship and like that for me I saw it when I was a teenager and I think that kind of made an impact on me it was um again we're talking about a movie that was so emotionally raw William Inge wrote it and uh it was just, 
I mean, it was it was so important because in so many ways it talks about it explores some ground that I had never been exposed to. It's about you know things that are in the pre-depression in the Midwest. I'd never even been to the Midwest, and that that world there in the twenties, the Roaring Twenties, juxtaposed against you know what was going to happen with the with the depression and um, of course the great Illy Kazan. But Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty are you can't take your eyes off of them in this movie, and I think it's one of the best movies, except for Sixteen Candles, of course, about young love. I'm, I'm kidding, but um, <laughs> about young love that I, that I've ever seen, and uh, I think the ending you know, really had a, had a huge impact on me. Natalie Wood, just 16 years old, by the way. I mean, I obviously remember her from Rebel Without a Cause, played Maria in West Side Story, but was nominated for her performance in Splendor of the Grass. Uh, amazing to think of where she was in her career. And the expression, Jim, Splendor in the Grass, comes from the romantic poet William Wordsworth. He originally coined that phrase in his poem, Ode Intimations of Immortality, from recollections of early childhood. I, I just think it's a very evocative phrase. Wow, you've done your homework. Yeah. <laughs> Once you gave me a heads up, I said, I got to find something here to splatter the grass. Um, I got hey, one have more you to seen the movie? I, I have, but I saw it years ago. I, I couldn't speak to it because I saw it, like I want to say like literally 25 years ago, so I don't remember much about it, except for, as you mentioned, the ending. And I remember thinking that, again, this is about a teenage girl, you know, navigating pain and heartbreak. And, and I just remember feeling a lot of sympathy for her. Like I said, I don't think... Like that era must have been so hard to try to navigate your own feelings and then trying to balance your own parental uh, obligations or expectations. Well, the whole the whole engine is, of course, is sexual repression, which we don't get to talk about anymore nowadays. But um, it is it, 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 we. I think it's a it's an amazing look backward at the role and the power of sexual repression in young people's lives and and how the culture dealt with it as well and. Uh, you know, I think that the way that she handles it and the way that she has to navigate it uh, is is incredible. And you can also, I mean, let's face it, you can also see in Beatty um, just what a unbelievable leading man he was he was going to be. Um, he's 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 pretty powerful in this, and uh, it's a great dynamic with his father. And uh, there's some there's some wonderful contextual things going on about, you know, what was happening in the country. And, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a freaking sad movie, man, but it, uh, it, I think there's a lot to be said about, about lessons of love in it. So that was my third. Uh, definitely check out Splendor in the Grass if you haven't seen it. My third for me is Do the Right Thing, a microcosm of the world at large as Spike Lee takes one day back in 1989, the hottest day of the year, to show how all these personalities chime together. And for a movie which is about race and identity and frustration, it's also hysterical. And when you watch Do the Right Thing again, you appreciate the humor of the movie, whether it's Frank Vincent's car getting doused, whether it's just the character bugging out, getting upset that there's no brothers on the wall, the fact that a guy wearing a Celtics jersey steps on his shoes, uh, Sam Jackson's character, senior love daddy. I mean, all of it teams together towards this showdown between Danny Aiello's character, who's brilliant playing Sal. De Niro originally offered the role, turned it down, told Spike it was too reminiscent of too many other characters I've played. Instead, Aiello knocks to the park at Sal, who is deeply sympathetic, but when he gets driven to the brink by bugging out, 
utter some racial epithets, and all of a sudden the whole thing falls apart. The pizza parlor is burned down. I mean, it's it's a heartbreaking movie, but it's also, I think this is important to mention, Jim, because when people think about it, they forget the humor of the movie and the fact that Spike Lee really has a lot of humanity in telling the story about 10 different characters. I mean, from Ozzie Davis to, to Ruby D to John Turturro, every character and every performance is a knockout. I think that's, I, look, it's a very special movie, and I think the one thing that I remember after seeing that movie is how distinctive a vision and a voice Spike Lee has. I think that that was the movie for me that was like, wait a second, nobody else could have directed that movie as we saw it. And I thought, wow, that's, this is really special. I mean, obviously he's, he had done things before and he's done afterwards, uh, things after that make you think that, but I was very, very consumed by that thought. And, and I think that's one of the great things about film and, you know, the idea that a director, uh, look, I mean, as a writer, uh, I'd like to think that it's all about the writer, but the director in a movie makes so many decisions, um, including supervising the script. And I think that it just was such a singular kind of movie and so reflective of who Spike Lee is that even if you had taken, even if you had given that same exact script to somebody to direct, it would have been different. It just was, you know, I just thought it was like an x-ray on who this guy is. And I think he's continued to do that. Even, even when he made a straight popcorn movie like Inside Man, which I thought was phenomenally successful and so important for him to correct, to, to direct because it showed that he could do, you know, a real crowd pleaser, but still in his own distinctive way. Um, I thought, I think it's a, it's a great, great port of entry into the world of Spike. Yeah, and it's a great comeback now with Black Klansman because he's had a, a lean decade since. But this is a movie, obviously, as you mentioned, not only like Inside Man, commercially successful, but he received the critical acclaim and finally got an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. James Andrew Miller, our special guest. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Jim Miller. When is the next Origins podcast coming out, Jim? I know these take a long time to put together. Is there any timeline we can expect to get some new content? Uh, I think right at the, at the beginning of the year. I think the beginning of the year, and uh, got a couple. In fact, uh, some from the from the world of movies. So uh, I'm really uh, looking forward to, to finishing those. I'm working on them today. Uh, anything on the Larry Sanders show we can expect from you at any time in the future? Why do you ask that? <laughs> I heard you on Jimmy Trainer's podcast, Jim, and you guys were talking about the Larry Sanders show, and you said what a big fan you were. So I don't know if you have anything coming down the pipeline or just. A fan of his, because God, I love that show. Uh, yeah, I, well, I'm a big Gary Shanley fan. I am working on something right now, not to be a dick, but uh, I gotta like keep it quiet right now. But yeah, I'm a I'm a big Gary Shanley fan, and uh, and uh, hope to be uh, you know doing something with that pretty soon. Oh, that's great, man! Because God, that show and his level of comedy is just brilliant, and I hope people appreciate how good it is. We certainly appreciate James Andrew Miller, as I mentioned, the best-selling author, CAA. Uh, those guys have all the fun. Um, obviously, the Saturday Night Live book and Origins, new episodes coming in January. This is a great idea, Jim. I really appreciate your generosity, as always, and your time, and uh, some excellent choices. To recap, Jim's choices are really good. Hoosiers, Splendor in the Grass, and I really love The Third Man. Thanks so much, Jim. Thank you, man. Real special get here on Cinefa. I don't know how we got him, but my dad is available. That's right. Papa Burke is in the house. He's here to talk about a documentary which is available on Netflix. It's called Salam, the First Muslim Nobel Laureate. 
which is a fantastic documentary, which I saw. Zakir Thaver is one of the film's producers. Um, there's a good article here on BBC in case you want to take a look by Abigail Beale that can tell you more about the documentary. But it's currently available, as I mentioned, on Netflix. It's about Pakistani scientist Abdul Salam, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics. And his life's work was key to defining a theory of particle physics. But what's more interesting is the fact that he was a dedicated Muslim, but the very word Muslim was whitened out from his gravestone in Pakistan. So how exactly could somebody who belongs to this faith not be recognized as such? That's where we bring in the scholar, my dad, who can talk more about this. Dad, uh, first and foremost, I know ever since uh, I was a baby, you've always been really obsessed with Dr. Salam and his contributions. What is it about him that's so important to you? Dr. Abdul Salam was the first Pakistani scientist who won a Nobel Prize. Not only that, he was also an Ahmadi to which I be, to, to the sect that I belong to. He brought fame to Pakistan and the whole Muslim world. Since as Newton was important to the physics in England and Europe, so is Dr. Abdul Salam important to the people of Pakistan and the whole Muslim world in the field of science. And of course, what's interesting about it is, as you mentioned, even though he's a Muslim, he is not recognized as such because of the Pakistani government, because of their view of Ahmadis, the sect to which we belong. If you can speak further about that and why the documentary explains how he's such a unique person. Dr. Abdul Salam had four things that his life evolved around, revolved around. One was his love for Pakistan. The second was the propagation of science in the third world. The third was his love for physics. And the fourth was he wanted to build an institution to, from where the poor um, uh, Muslim students or any student, science student who was from third world, he could come and study physics and higher uh, education. So for that reason, he built a international center for theoretical physics in Italy, from where hundreds and thousands of people, students have come and graduated. Not only that, he wanted to build this physics institute in Pakistan, but some short-sighted person who was finance minister then decided not to have it built in Pakistan. At this time, believe it or not, there are thousands of Muslims from students from Pakistan who are coming to Trieste in Italy to study and they go back and they again teach other students in Pakistan. So they don't have to leave their country the way Dr. Abdul Salam had to leave his country to go to England to study. So the Pakistani government does not view Ahmadis as Muslims, which is why he felt the need, obviously, to flee and to go further his education elsewhere. So think about that. He loves his own country, yet he is viewed as an outsider there. And as I mentioned, you know, the fact that his, the word Muslim is even whitened out from his gravestone there. What was your contribution, Dad, to this documentary specifically? Because you are mentioned in the end credits. It was about 14 years ago that Zakir Tower, who is the producer of the documentary, he contacted me because I was an Ahmadi and he knew that I had produced some books on Dr. Abdul Salam in Urdu language. He contacted me and after that, we were in touch with each other for many years. If he had, sometime if he had any question, he would ask me 
and ask for some clar- clarification, which I did. And also, in 1982, Dr. Abdul Salam came to Madison, Wisconsin to deliver a lecture. And he had informed me through his letter that I will be in Madison at such and such date in July 1982. If you wish to come and see me, you should do. So I went there with my wife and my son Zishan and I met Dr. Abdul Salam at the Madison University he was staying in a dormitory. And after he had delivered his lecture, I met him. And we stayed with him for about two hours. After that, he went, he told me that he was going to New York. I came back to Toronto and I arranged with the radio station that they should interview Dr. Abdul Salam, who had received Nobel Prize three years ago. So the radio station, which was called Chin Radio at the time, they interviewed Dr. Abdul Salam uh, and the, I, they gave me the tape afterwards, the, into, which had the interview. So I kept that interview for so long. Later on, I, I gave that interview to Zakir Thawar and he has it in the documentary at the very beginning in about five minutes later from the start of the movie. So that's my contribution. Uh, as Zakir himself says here in the article I'm reading for the BBC, the first Muslim to win the prize in science is the very word Muslim whitened out. It's the final affront to the most illustrious son of the soil. He says he and his co-producer Omar Vandal only learned about Salam when in the mid-90s they moved from Pakistan to the U.S. to study at university. We read Salam's obituary in the New York Times. Back home, his story had been buried. So it's an excellent documentary, once again, to check out on Netflix and uh, definitely learn more about it. somebody who uh, clearly... Uh, did not receive as much respect and it claims he should have back home. Salam, the first Muslim Nobel laureate, once again on Netflix. Dad, any closing thoughts? I would commend everybody to watch this documentary. It's a very, very interesting documentary. It shows how a person from a poor background can and can with his will and determination study and make his name for his country all over the world. So I would highly recommend everybody who is interested in science or otherwise, they should watch this documentary. All right. Great work, Dad. Back to your grandkids. All right. Thanks so much to my dad. That's right. Papa Verk, Zachariah Verk. You cannot find him on Twitter, but you know what? You can tweet me, add me on S. Verk, and I'll let you know what you thought of my dad and him talking about that documentary, Salam, on Netflix. And of course, a big thank you to James Andrew Miller. Jim is always so engaging and fun and thoughtful, and I thought his choices were terrific. Go check out The Lighthouse. Next time on Cinephile, I'll talk about Parasite, the new film from Bong Joon-ho, which is getting tons of rave reviews. And next time, of course, we'll do our Mount Rushmore and The Bada Binge. Until then, on behalf of my producer, Joe, and the entire crew, this is Adnan Burke, and I'll see you at the movies. Meal 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.